Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkling. Well, good afternoon. Uh, this is Greg Dunkling. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer Blog Talk Radio Show. We're coming to you live from Burlington, Vermont. If you've dreamed about opening your brewery or looking for a career change into the craft beer industry, our certificate program offers industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. Our instructors are craft beer experts from across the United States and Canada. The University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer program was developed for those who specifically want to learn about this, uh, the business side of this exciting industry. And for further de- details, give us a call at 800-639-3210 or visit us on our Facebook page at the UVM Business of Craft Beer. Okay, well today um, we're going to examine crowdfunding models uh, used by some in the craft beer industry. Of course, production of beer is a capital-intensive business, and those just starting out may not personally have the deep pockets <coughs> to fund their brewery. Crowdfunding has been an effective approach for some, and today we'll examine how this is accomplished, considerations for launching a funding campaign, and also some less talked about limitations. Today's guests are Travis Benoit, founder and former chief experience officer for Crowdbrood, which supports crowdfunding, financing, and fundraising options for the craft beer industry. Travis, a UVM alum, uh, sold Crowdbrood in February of 2016 and is scheduled to launch Bev.co.co by the end of the year, uh, an online craft alcohol marketplace for buyers and sellers, or as he describes it, Uber meets Amazon for alcohol. Also joining us later in the show is Janice Shade uh, from Milk Money Vermont, an approved crowdfunding platform here in our state. She will discuss their work to make it easier for entrepreneurs and small business owners to get, get access to patient neighborly capital to grow their companies. Milk Money Vermont is just launching a campaign with their first local brewery to raise capital for expansion. So let's get started. Welcome, Travis. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So um, our, our focus today, as indicated, is crowdfunding um, with a special look at how it is applied in the craft beer industry. Um, of course, Kickstarter has broadly publicized this model of raising funds for a project, yet there seems to be still some confusion about this term. Could you offer listeners a definition of what crowdfunding means? Sure. So general crowdfunding, not taking into account any specific um, area of crowdfunding, but the term itself is when a, is when a number of well, multiple people pool their money together to uh, invest or to donate to a specific cause or project as opposed to one or two larger investors coming in and fulfilling that financial obligation. So, for example, let's say a 1,000 people pool together 
to raise $10,000 as opposed to one or two people themselves. That's crowdfunding, taking the crowd, compounding funds, and um, putting it toward either a cause or to a project. Now, um, I've seen reference to sort of what appear to be different models. There are those that seem to gain some benefit as, as an investor, and there are there are other models that are specifically called equity crowdfunding. Uh, could you sort of describe the differences? Sure. So there are a few, a few different types of crowdfunding. Um, crowdfunding was originally signed into law in 2012 from the equity perspective, which I'll explain, to allow the everyday average Joe, the U's and I's of the world, to invest in small businesses, startups, and growth businesses that – traditionally don't receive either bank funding or uh, alternative means of funding. So, um, so going back, equity crowdfunding was originally founded, like I mentioned, in 2012, but it took many, many years to allow the everyday average Joe to invest. It wasn't actually until May of this year, I believe, that uh, Title III of the Jobs Act, which is, allows, the, allows the use and eyes of the world to invest in small businesses and startups, to actually um, to come to fruition. Prior to that, however, there was what was called Title II, which allowed the traditional high net worth individual the opportunity to invest in small businesses and growth businesses and startups um, based, on, uh, based on your net asset value, based on your net worth, um, and your annual income. So that was the, the kind of uh, background of equity-based crowdfunding. Again, it wasn't until uh, this year that Title III came into fruition, allowing everybody uh, to invest a small portion of their income into small uh, businesses. So, so prior to that, um, the, the, perhaps the general public's understanding of, of the term crowdfunding um, and maybe exemplified by Kickstarter and their many campaigns, that, that really was not the equity crowdfunding model uh, as much as it was people contributing money for good causes or things that they, they felt um, they wanted to support for one reason or another. Is that the, is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. So there were two – so actually Indiegogo was one of the first um, – reward-based crowdfunding platforms. And I'll explain explain reward-based. Reward-based is you give money to a campaign or to a cause or to a project, and in return, you receive something. Now, whether that something is a T-shirt for $50 or whether it's a a pre-launch of a beer or whether it's a pre-launch of a new CD or vinyl, um, basically, way that, the way that that model was established was that there was a set amount that a campaign would raise, and in doing so, they would exchange or give a reward in exchange for money. Um, that was the early, early onset of crowdfunding, and they call that reward-based crowdfunding. Um, there's also donation-based crowdfunding, which, is, which you may have heard of with the GoFundMe uh, pages. Uh, GoFundMe is a donation-based reward platform, I'm sorry, a donation-based crowdfunding platform only. That means there's nothing in exchange for the donations. You're doing it out of the good of your heart. And then, as I mentioned before, there's equity-based crowdfunding where people have the opportunity to actually own a part of that business, where they actually receive shares, um, quote-unquote shares, in a business um, as it grows. 
And, and when you look at the craft beer industry today, um, obviously donation, I guess that would not be applicable as much, but um, the reward-based and equity-based models, which of those tend to be used um, most, most often? Sure. So we'll go back and talk about two different two different forms of crowdfunding. Again, it's the reward-based crowdfunding and the equity-based crowdfunding. Originally, Crowdgroup was designed solely as an equity-based crowdfunding portal associated with an investment bank where we had broker-dealers, and they were legitimate transactions for the pre let's call it uh, pre-IPO shares. So what we noticed very early on in equity crowdfunding with the Title II, meaning the accredited high net worth individual. We noticed that the demand for investing in startup breweries was relatively low based on the traditional ROI, meaning that the return on the investment of a, an early stage or startup brewery would be relatively low in comparison to other, um, let's call it technology companies or other, uh, other opportunities for investment, which parlays, which, which parlay, which parlayed our company Crowdbrewed into uh, a reward donation-based platform. And what I mean by that was we didn't get the, the fulfillment from the equity side that we believe we would have had Title III been out. Um, we believe that had we had the opportunity to have everybody invest in crowdfunding, meaning your neighbor, your friend, your sister, your brother, uh, in exchange for equity, to be able to say they're an owner, to have that feeling of ownership that, hey, I'm drinking that beer, I, I'm an owner of that brewery, whether it's one share or a thousand shares, would have been vital for our market, but the laws were very, very delayed, which Janice will get to, I'm sure, with her platform later on today. Yeah. So we parlayed our platform into a reward-based model, meaning that um, breweries were to raise money, and traditionally breweries came on with a range, look, seeking a range of, say, 25 to 50,000, with a number, let's call it 40,000, as, as kind of the key figure. Um, but basically what would happen is breweries would, would reach out to their social network, which is very, very, very important. Um, those looking to attempt for reward-based crowdfunding must understand that you can't just put a, platform, uh, a campaign up and expect everybody to come to you. There's a lot of work involved, and there's a lot of social integration and social media and marketing and, and local outreach, et cetera. But with that being said, what we've traditionally seen is the reward-based model from a success perspective, and success is relative, but what we saw was an average of about 25,000 raised from an, from an average of, let's say, maybe 400, investors, um, 400 donors. And some of the rewards that uh, we've seen in the past that have been successful obviously have been the T-shirts and the stickers and the beer koozies. But what really got interesting was when they start, when breweries started making relationships with with established breweries, allowing opportunities for new brewers to come on and, and brew for a day, um, to build a resume, or to or for designers to come in and design the new label of a beer bottle, and we found that those rewards went for a higher, obviously a higher value, and uh, and when you limit them, you saw uh, quite a bit of demand. So again, mm. just to reiterate, reward-based crowdfunding. Um, which is where we parlayed our company into, was, was predominantly someone gives money in exchange for something in return. Um, and again, those types of rewards can be as exotic as you want them to be or as traditional as T-shirts and whatnot um, from the get-go. 
So uh, I think we'll talk about this in a few minutes with our next guest. Um, but on the equity base side, um, I, I'm assuming that that these are more uh, for established, maybe in business for a year or two. Um, but for the donation-based reward, um, are they are they equally between startups uh, or expansion of of existing breweries, or you know what's that picture look like? Sure. So traditionally, what we've seen is uh, mainly startups or or brewers that are looking to bring their barrel system, let's say, from a three to a seven, or uh-huh. like you mentioned, the word expansion. Um, you know, I, what we learned very early on, there's two forms of reward-based crowdfunding. One is the Kickstarter model, and one is the Indiegogo model. And what I mean by that is Kickstarter requires that you must raise your threshold dollar value. So if you're seeking 50000 and you raise forty nine, you get zero. That means you don't send out any donation, any rewards, and you receive no money. Whereas the Indiegogo and the Crowdbird model was – you rate what you raise, you take. And the reason that we went with that model and the reason I, and I don't want to speak at a turn on behalf of Indiegogo, but I think ultimately the idea behind that is at least for us was brewing is an art. Brewing is something that people truly love and enjoy and they're going to do it whether or not they're able to achieve that maximum value. So for example, if they, if they're seeking 50,000 and they raise 23, they'll get the $23,000, mm-hmm. you know, and then, okay. and, and then the obligation falls on the brewer to fulfill their rewards. Now, Great. We, we, so we're we, going we're gonna to get into some of the details in a few minutes of, of what seems to work and some of the complications of, of these arrangements. But I'd, I'd like to welcome our, our next guest, Janice Shade from Milk Money Vermont. Welcome, Janice. Thanks. Glad to be here. So tell us uh, about Milk Money Vermont, and please do tell us about how you settled on uh, what, a, what is a great name for a crowd, crowdfunding entity, Milk Money. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, the idea for it uh, really goes back to my own experience and that of my, my co-founder, Louisa Shibley. You know, but each of us are entrepreneurs in our own right and um, got to experience firsthand the the joy and frustration of trying to raise capital from, you know, more traditional paths, you know, from angels and, and venture capital and, and even banks. And, you know, kind of always having in the back of uh, our mind, you know, when I started my first company, I had this thing, I called it my million moms idea. And this was way back in, you know, 2007. It's like, you know, wouldn't it be great if all the moms who would want my products for their families, if they could just each give me a dollar as, and I wanted it to be an investment and like, you know, they could invest in this other mom entrepreneur and I'd have a million bucks to get my company up and, and running and they'd be my investors. And, you know, my attorney said, yeah, that's, you know, that's illegal. You can't do it. And this is way before Kickstarter ever um, was, was on the scene. And, um, but, you know, so I just always kind of had this idea in the back of my mind. And then when Louisa and I learned about some, some updates to regulations in, at the Vermont state level, um, we realized that we could start to put something like that million moms idea into place. Um, and the, the, the regulation is called the Vermont small business offering exemption. And it, it's, it's been around for quite a while. Actually, uh, Ben and Jerry's used it back in 1984, raised, I think, $770,000, something like that, to build mm. uh, their plant in Waterbury, Vermont. And they, were, and they, they um, sold stock, 
and the minimum investment amount was $126, uh, and it was open to any Vermont resident, regardless of net, um, net worth or income, as, as Travis was talking about. None of those restrictions existed. So the updates that came about two years ago um, just you know, kind of brought that regulation into the 21st century and allowed for broader solicitation of these kinds of things through the website, through uh, social media. And so that's why Louisa and I said, let's create the platform where entrepreneurs can post their campaigns and uh, also do the investor education side uh, to let people know that, hey, you can actually do this now and it's as easy as coming to our website, proving that you're a Vermonter by giving, uh, uploading a copy of your driver's license. And then uh, the minimum investment um, on our site is $250, um, which is pretty good considering that's you know, Ben and Jerry's did it for one hundred and twenty six dollars back in nineteen eighty four. So we're we're beating inflation on that and still letting letting a, a you know a, a good uh, entry point because it is all about uh, you know lots of small investments adding up, which is that's really what's behind the name Milk Money. You know, we kind of had this idea of you know you had your milk money, excuse me, your milk money. You know, lots of nickels and dimes. <laughs> if you saved all that, it would kind of add up to be a lot. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. Kind of behind it. Yeah. And and when did you when did you launch? Uh, we officially launched uh, in February of this year. Uh, had okay. the website up and and we just got our first campaigns up this summer. So we have four campaigns that have been live. One started in July, but really it's been um, more like August September that we've had um, campaigns up. And to date, we uh, these companies have collectively raised forty three thousand dollars. So we're we're on our way. Great. Now, <clears throat> I understand that you are uh, just initiating a fundraising campaign with a, a Vermont brewery, and I know that you may be a bit too early to, to talk in specific details, but can you give us some general idea of, of you know, so what's, what's the nature of this project? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's part of why we're still in uh, working things out with them is they're, they're still trying to figure out exactly uh, where they're going to go if they're just going to be Brewing, or if they're also going to add into uh, add a pub aspect into what they're doing, or or a tasting room, but you know they have product. They have um, they're actually they're organized as a cooperative, which is a pretty cool um, way to set up as a, a brewery. And they have several members who have already pledged and, and um, bought into their memberships as the co-op. And yep. so they have they they have a loyal following. And that's that's important for us. You know, we we tend to like to work with companies that have some proven uh, proof of concept. I guess is, is the right way to, to say it. It's not just an idea rattling around in a couple people's heads. They they've they've made yeah. beer. They've sold beer. They've got members coming on. Um, so the, the the campaign that they want to do through Milk Money is um, to help them. They've they've located uh, a space for them to expand. A you know a, a production space. So the capital will help them to get in, get set up, and provide that initial working capital to get the um, their the brewing up and running. Great. Um, so, so what are some of the legal issues uh, with starting uh, or investing in a crowdfunding campaign? You, you've referenced a little bit of that about that, Janice. Why don't you start? And Travis, I'd like you to talk about your experience in this area. Yeah. Well, so one of the key differences between what we're doing and what Travis was describing with the the Title III of the Jobs Act is 
we can only show campaigns and all the offering documents and the details of an offering to people who have proved that they're a Vermonter. That's a, that's a requirement by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, which I'm going to call the DFR. That's the acronym for Department of Financial Regulation. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing that you know, people, you know, you can log on to our website right now, but if you don't have a Vermont driver's license to upload, you're not going to get too far. You'll be able to see some basic information about the companies that are up there, but you won't be able to see the, the offering documents. And that's a, that's a protection mechanism for yep. uh, really for the entrepreneur um, because if, if it happened that somebody from, you know, New Hampshire somehow was able to invest, it could, it, it could cause big problems and totally uh, nullify the whole exemption. Then you're getting into the mess of the SEC. Um, so that's, that's a big one right there. Um, on the you know on the investor side, um, I guess you know not so much from a legal standpoint, but standpoint, but from an educational standpoint, one thing that we're really uh, aware of and trying to uh, spread awareness about is the fact that you know you are investing in a startup. Um, it's a risky thing, um, and so to really uh, do your due diligence, and so we're doing a lot of education with uh, potential investors on, you know, how do you do your due diligence on a company? Um, we're trying to put the all the offering documents in what we call plain English, and actually the the DFR, that's their term, is that um, it has to be understandable by the average person, not somebody with, you know, a law degree from Harvard. Um, uh-huh. And all of the all of the offering documents have to be reviewed and approved by the DFR before they can go up on our website. Okay. Travis, what's your, your experience with, uh, with this question? So, so very early on, as I mentioned, um, and as Janice was alluding to, um, when Title II and Title III of the Jobs Act was first announced, um, there were very arduous documents that had to be in place, offering documents, private placement memorandums, um, term sheets, if it was uh, convertible debt, things along those lines that um, made it very, very difficult, I believe, uh, on behalf of the startups in, in smaller businesses. What's mm-hmm. happened over the course, and again, I'm speaking on, on the national level, not on the state-by-state, interstate law level. Um, basically, what, what, a few, what a few of these equity-based crowdfunding portals have done, and I know a couple that have worked with breweries, one specifically out of Boston um, called WeFunder, uh, they've formed a set of documents called SAFE. Um, and I'm not sure what the actual, what, what the word SAFE actually breaks down to mean. But what it is is the standardized set of documents that um, to, to kind of streamline the process, to make it one set of uniform documents, whereas early on in the day, it was very, very convoluted where you had to bring in lawyers and the costs were quite excessive, um, but nowadays, it's rel- now that everybody can invest, they've tried to make it as streamlined as possible. And again, they use, they use these new form of documents called safe documents. So but the, in the, the very safe, beginning, yes, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, um, safe um, stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And it's, a, it's kind of a twist on convertible debt. It's actually called convertible equity. But that's, that, the acronym is Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And I think what they've done is great with it. Are you in. using that? In, are you using that in Vermont? We, it's one of the things that we offer to potential campaigners uh, as the type of security to offer. Um, none have chosen to use it yet, mostly because um, it's still 
the kind of the jury is still out as to um, how effective it is. And so, so most of our campaigns are either raising convertible debt or um, in the case of some, we're raising some money for cooperatives. They're actually doing non-voting preferred equity. But I'm, sure. I'm very interested in the um, in safe and the convertible equity because it's, it's just a lot simpler to explain to a potential investor than the whole con- convertible debt instrument. Well, uh, back to what you said earlier, Travis, um, and, and Janice, I'd, I'd be interested to see what happens here in Vermont over, over time. But if the, if the average um, uh, 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 fundraising or investment is 25000 in some of these projects, of course, you know, we've seen some that are 50, you know, 60000 so higher than that, um, <clears throat> Keeping the the legal costs down to initiate one of these projects is probably going to be absolutely essential. Otherwise, um, how would people be able to uh, afford uh, uh, a project like this or a fundraising mechanism that, like this? That, that's exactly a big piece of what Milk Money is doing for uh, for campaigners for for people who want to raise capital. Is we've we're working with um, several law firms in the in Vermont who specialize in securities law, and they've given us uh, sample documents, um, almost a, a template, if you will, of, of a private placement memorandum that we can use for the various types of securities. And so we have that that document already, kind of in our our stable of templates. Then we can layer in the the business the the, the company's business plan and create that offering document that they can then, we, we strongly encourage and I mean, like on the verge of requiring um, the, the entrepreneur to take it and have their, uh, their attorney review the document, but having the, an attorney review it is a lot less expensive and time-consuming than having them build it from, from ground zero. So that's yeah. one way that we're sure. helping to mitigate the, the, the legal fees. You're right. Okay. That's very, to that point, Janice, that's very important um, because the costs can be astronomical when, when having uh, a private placement memorandum built from scratch from, from the legal perspective. But yet if you're, if you're providing that in full and then having a lawyer review it, that's, that's wonderful um, from a cost saving perspective. There is one, one more point that I think is very important now that we're talking costs. Um, what people may fail to realize on these Kickstarter platforms, whether or not you're selling widgets or whether or not you're, you're, you're building a brewery, um, all of the money that you raise is taxable. And people have to realize that we had a campaign come back to us about a year later um, and said we didn't realize how it was actually taxed. And, of course, we always recommend you speak to an attorney or an accountant prior to starting any business. But what ends up happening is, um, they re- they didn't realize the that all of that in- all of that money that they received was indeed taxable and put them in a in a in a pretty interesting situation that they didn't anticipate to be in and that's one thing that that I think is fail uh, gets failed to be told and and, it, and it's important that everybody knows that so if there is a brewery out there looking to go down one of these paths make sure that you do your due diligence with regard to speaking with attorneys or having one available or also understanding the financial ramifications of raising money as well. Great. And Janice, you mentioned you are working with some uh, law firms in Vermont who are, understand uh, th- these, these requirements and can maybe be more efficient at getting to, to answers. Uh, 
Exactly. And we've actually gotten, because we now have, so we have five campaigns that have gone through the review process with the DFR. We're, we're, we've gotten good enough at it now that they're starting to go through um, faster and easier. You know, in some of our first ones, the DFR came back with comments. We had to rewrite it and then go back to them and give them another 15 business days to review. We're, we're getting a lot more efficient. And I think the DFR is starting to gain some confidence in us and our ability to put together um, comprehensive and understandable private placement memorandums and uh, memoranda and other offering documents. So, um, you know, right. we're, we're starting to grease the skids there. Great. Um, so we, we've talked a bit about some of the benefits um, of, of such uh, campaigns. Uh, uh, tell us about some of the challenges. Um, uh, Travis, I know you've been, been at this for a while. What have you encountered along the way? And can you talk a little bit about some of the the time requirements that people may not be necessarily thinking about. Yes, um, and I will say, firstly, that I, that I think crowdfunding is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for those seeking funding uh, outside of the traditional realm because, as we all know, since 2008, raising money in the traditional fashion is very, very difficult today, especially for startups and small businesses. Um, but it's not easy to raise money, even via crowdfunding. And we, we learned that very early on when talking with campaigns. We can't stress enough the amount of time. We, you know, and there's many, many blogs out there, but what we suggest is you, know, you start preparing. Prior to even putting up your campaign, you start really starting to pitch your idea that you're going to be raising capital, you're going to be putting a project on a certain platform, and that you're going to need their support because crowdfunding truly is social and the social viability of it is very, very important. That means your friend tells three people, their friend tells three people and their friend tells three people. And all of a sudden you're up to three, 400 uh, donors, dash investors. Um, a lot of people I think in our, in the early days or even maybe even still today um, come on expecting, okay, great. We've built a campaign. We've done everything we have to do. Now let's just let it run itself. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of pushing. Um, it's, it's a full-time job, really, to keep from the social media perspective, from the marketing perspective, and from the social share perspective, reaching out to people, influencers, et cetera, in your network. Um, and, and again, I, I can't stress that enough. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful medium, but it does take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. what, one, once the campaign has been concluded, successfully concluded, and, and resources are available, um, what are what are some of the time uh, constraints on when those funds may be used or can have to be used? When you say have to be, well, firstly, the traditional crowdfunding campaign on the reward side is about uh, thirty to forty-five days, and uh, funds are available, let's say, within seven days of close. <clears throat> now, it's a little different on the equity side, and Janice will speak to this one as well. Um, but we noticed uh, very early on when our minimum investments were 25000 had they raised their funds, it was a three-month campaign, and money would be held in escrow, very, very similar to a bank, um, well, a bank escrow account. And then once the campaign is completed um, and all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted, then the money is available. So money is available upon completion of the campaigns, and regardless of what form of crowdfunding you're using. It's just the duration of your campaign raise. 
I was thinking more from the standpoint of, of requirements for when the fund should be spent or used. So on that point, we've had campaigns that have gone two years until they sent out their first reward uh, on the reward-based model. So okay. there is no timeline. I think from a... I think from a friendly perspective, you'd like to get it to them as soon as possible, right? I mean, yeah. that just yeah. keeps people engaged. But I have donated to campaigns where I didn't receive something in the in the time in the timeline that was mentioned. Let's say six months from close, and yeah. I didn't get it for two years. So, okay, you know. So and, on, and in Vermont, the... Janice, is that state by state? Is do does Vermont have any requirements around that? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, and and it, it is different too, just because it's equity crowdfunding versus rewards-based um, crowdfunding. Yeah. But for for the state, um, the state requires that in your offering documents and your in, in your PPM, you must clearly state what your um, target, your you know your maximum amount that you're going for, and then um, it then sets it works backwards from that maximum. Um, to put a limit on uh, the timing when you can access those funds is when once you have reached or exceeded 25% of that maximum. So say, uh, you know, a brewery wants to raise $100,000, they would have to have raised $25,000, which must uh, be held in escrow in a Vermont domiciled bank. And we're using um, Vermont State Employees Credit Union. So all of our campaigns have an account their own account at, at the SBCU where all of their, their, their investment funds go into that account. Once they reach the 25% minimum, then they can start accessing the funds. In terms of what the investor gets, um, you know, the, that 25% minimum is, it was set by the state as a safeguard so that, you know, if a company is saying they needed to raise $100,000 but they only get 10000 you know, 10000 might not be enough to have them really move the needle, and that's, it's just kind of throwing good money after bad. So that's why mm. they put that 25% minimum on there. If, if the company never reaches 25%, um, all the money's returned to the investors. Um, okay. And, and so it's held in escrow until they reach that, that uh, until they can break that escrow amount, at which point they'll receive, um, you know, their, their actual, you know, their stock certificate or their, their note or whatever they're actually investing in. And then as each subsequent investment comes in, people will automatically, as soon as their investment is made, they will receive their stock certificate or, or whatever. So it's, that's immediate. Yeah. Okay. They will, they'll get their investment documents. Uh, Travis, uh, interested in uh, your work in this area, um, where did you see um, most of the focus in terms of breweries and their their uh, either startup or expansion? Where where were they mostly allocating their funds through uh, crowdfunding mechanism? Sure. So you were saying what is traditionally their use of funds? <clears throat> yes. Correct. Yes. Yes. So what we noticed was we, we worked we worked a lot with uh, like I mentioned earlier we worked a lot with startup breweries and yeah. um, and and expansion breweries and when we say expansion breweries we're looking from one system size to the next so yeah okay so what we noticed so what we noticed was barrel equipment was a, was a big uh, was a big driver for raising capital um, okay. but from the but from the startup scene it went everywhere from securing location to permit fees to um, 
basically the entire gamut of setting up a brewery, which is a business in itself. Um, so again, it ranges everywhere from the entire infrastructure of the business to more focused on um, brewing equipment, which tends to be the most uh, cost-intensive of the brewing uh-huh. process. Yeah. Did you have a process, um, or have you just, uh, uh, through your ongoing connections with people in the industry, have you have you been able to follow these uh, breweries over time to see, you know, how successful were were their expansion efforts or their whatever, however they use those funds and where they might be today, you know, one, two, three years down yeah. the road. Sure. So over over the first three years of the reward uh, based model, we raised uh, a, a roughly forty five breweries raised funds on kick uh, on on Crowdbrew and with. And to date, two of those are no longer in existence, and the balance are. And I think that's, that says a lot to its success, the way that they manage their money, the way that they manage their brewery, and the way that they were able to grow their, their social footprint. Right. I would build on that just to say that you know a lot of what we think is the power of milk money-type investments, and it's exactly what I'm, I'm hearing Travis say, is that you're not only helping these businesses get some capital at a crucial time when they need it to build out their business, but they're getting that capital from the best brand ambassadors they could ever have. And, you know, these early investors or early um, donors or, you know, people coming in at that early stage, they're the true believers and they're, they're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy almost by, by, um, being excited about what they're investing in, telling their friends about it, buying yeah. the products mm. themselves, and helping to to contribute to the success of the company. Yeah, you know, we had an uh, earlier show. I think it was about a month ago that featured a couple of uh, breweries that had used um, crowdfunding, and they t- they spoke about um, their projects and and they did. You know, one was in from Pennsylvania, one was from uh, Kansas City, and they 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 really underscored that connection to their community um of course of course the craft uh by and large most craft breweries are extremely connected to their local community in all sorts of ways um but certainly starting out uh having having uh utilizing that network and building that network um through uh through a fundraising um, mechanism seems to reinforce that connection to community Absolutely. We we actually had one brewery that was looking to raise forty five thousand, and they were they had the best business etiquette. They had everything mapped down to the penny, very wonderful, everything secured. But they were able to only raise twenty five thousand, so let's say a little more than fifty five percent of what they were looking to raise. But what they did come back and say after the fact was, is they said it's okay that we didn't raise the, the full amount of money because what we obtained was a tremendous amount of uh, quote unquote marketing, marketing and yeah. press and, you know, so many different, so many things you don't really tie into when you're raising money. Right. And that's, yeah. you know, right. self promotion. And, and like you mentioned before, you know, the self fulfilling prophecy, you're, you're really going out there and you're selling yourself unbeknownst because what you're actually doing is while you're trying to raise money, um, you're also out there pitching yourself to many, many people, and as that as that momentum grows, you'll you, you see that pass from person to person. And we've noticed it really in a community perspective as well. Um, when a new brewery were to come to a smaller community or or to a new community that you know didn't have a brewery or didn't have as many breweries as say like a San Diego, of course, 
you know, you saw that you, you did see the town get behind them. And you also saw competitive breweries in that area also support that, that brewery's growth and, and, and entrance. And that was another yeah. thing that I found really fascinating, you know, was the camaraderie within that industry and the camaraderie within, um, you know, crowdfunding as a whole. Yeah. By the way people share their information. Sure. You know, I, I'm I'm reminded of uh, of a couple uh, you you mentioned before WeFunder, um, and I and I really when I looked at their website and uh, this quote really uh, uh, had an impact. Um, Entrepreneurship is dying among the young. They stated, decreasing from 10.6 percent to 3.6 percent of under 30 year olds over a 25 year period. Wealth inequality is increasing. Let's help build more businesses and save the American dream. Um, so that's one of their intended, uh, you know, miss, mission, vision uh, statements. And then I, I, I keep, as you both talk, I keep uh, hearing this echo of the the slow money and you know the organizations that are behind that. And one of their um, uh, missions is to, um, or statements is we must connect investors to the places where they live, creating healthy relationships and new sources of capital for small food and enterprises. And in many cases, you would describe a brewery as a as a small food enterprise. Um, so everything I'm hearing here is really, you know, it's not the it's not the fast money. It's not those people who are, and they're certainly out there, and there are many people today who are who are looking to invest you know, as, a, as an equity investor for the return on their investment. But what we've been talking about today is really slow money, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it ties right into uh, this summer. We had a, an intern from Champlain College do a project for us to help us be able to uh, um, kind of quantify back out to investors what the social ROI of their investment is. That in yeah. addition to, you know, getting that financial return, of their investment. You know, they're also creating jobs. They're spreading wealth throughout their community. They're creating opportunities for, for support businesses to support the one that they are investing in. So, um, you know, that's, that's a big, a big piece of what we're talking about. And I, we're confident and we're starting to see that there are people for whom that's very compelling that, that, that they want to put their money into things that they really believe in and that um, coincide with their personal values. Yeah, right. You know, some of the investors that I've encountered, uh, many in Vermont, but not all, um, and, and they probably fall into both of these categories of, of you know, equity and, and uh, I don't know if donation really is uh, accurate, but um, but certainly reward um, investments. They they see an industry that's growing rapidly. They're probably huge fans of, of craft beer anyway, um, and to be associated as a part owner um, uh, in, a, in a brewery. Um, people don't know necessarily what that actually means, but uh, people just find a coolness factor in that. Is, is that what you hear as well? It's funny. <clears throat> when we originally started Crabroot and we wanted to make it for the everyday investor, but the laws were a little delayed on that, we really yeah. went on that, on that exact point. We, you know, the idea of getting a T-shirt's great. Sure, you know, you can you get a T-shirt, you get a book, you get whatever. But the idea of saying that you are an owner of a brewery, that beer you're drinking right there on that table, I'm an owner. Whether, like I mentioned earlier, whether it be one share, a thousand shares, you know, regardless, you 
you believe in something, you can quantify the fact that you're sitting there, you're an owner in the beer that you're about to drink, you know, as an outside investor. And I think that that is a really, really cool thing to say. Yeah. And the, the corollary to that uh, on the entrepreneur side, you know, it, it was very cool. One, uh, we heard from one of our, um, one of our campaign companies when she got her first, investment in from somebody who she didn't know, you know, not a friend and family person knew who was putting money in, but from somebody she didn't know, she said, you know what? All of a sudden I feel all the more responsible. I'm spending someone else's money and I, you know, I have to be responsible for that. So, you know, you see how it's making the entrepreneurs more responsible business people at the same time, because, you know, they, they might run into these people in the grocery store, uh, you know, their, their investors, and they have to be accountable to them. So it, it raises that great level of accountability that we believe will lead to, you know, good decision-making and, and, or at least, you know, more accountable decision-making. Yeah. So, Travis, you're moving to a new venture. Uh, could you just uh, for a minute or so describe what, what uh, BevCo is and, and when you uh, plan to launch? Sure. So, um, so thank you for that. So what I heard while running Crowdbrood and speaking to brewers and breweries, um, I heard the same thing come up over and over again. And today we're sitting around 5,000 breweries and about 1,300 distilleries um, on the craft side. And what we're hearing is the shelf space is very, very limited. Distributors are taking on clients but not able to put their product anywhere. So, um, you know, a one-minute pitch is basically what we did was we spent about a year and a half mapping out the U.S. Um, alcohol uh, legal infrastructure and uh, using self-distribution laws and uh, direct-to-consumer um, direct mediums, we've built an online marketplace, both with an on-demand partner and with an actual marketplace scenario like, like an Amazon, where multi-vendors come on board and sell their products. Um, we allow the vendors, which are our brewers in America, to sell directly to the consumers within the confines of the laws. So making it legal and compliant, bypassing two tiers of the distribution structure. So yeah. basically it allows brewers to reach out to their, um, their imbibers, uh, very similar to what the wine industry did many, many years ago. Well, now you can go out to Colorado and, and you taste a great IPA that you like, or very similar to like when you went out to Napa and you tried a great, you know, rosé, and, and, and you wanted a bottle of that, well, we afford that, we afford that transactional medium. So we act as the quote-unquote Amazon meets Uber for craft alcohol, allowing um, brewers and distillers to sell directly to their, to their client across the U.S., or, which is the end user, the imbiber. And we also um, offer an on-demand delivery platform where our on-delivery partner picks up the product from the brewery and brings them right to their house. So that's, well, that's it in a nutshell. That's great. That's great. Well, I'd like to uh, really thank Travis Benoit and Janice Shade uh, for being with us today and helping us gain a better understanding of crowdfunding and possibly how it may be used for those in the craft beer industry. Um, I'd also like to, to wish both of you great success in your new ventures. They both sound uh, very exciting, and we'll uh, keep a close eye on the progress uh, over the next year or two. Um, for those who are listening today um, or picking up uh, uh, the show on uh, iTunes or, or Blog Talk Radio, if you've ever dreamed about opening your own brewery or, or looking for a career change into the craft beer industry, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer Certificate offers the necessary 
specific knowledge uh, to make that possible. Check out our program by either giving us a call at 800-639-3210 or visit us on our Facebook page. Uh, in a future show, we will have Justin Kazmark, Director of Communications for Kickstarter, uh, with us as a guest, and we'll uh, discuss their experience with helping to fund various brewery-related campaigns. Until our next show, uh, don't forget to support your local breweries. Thanks again, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.